presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is a, uh, this is a new series that we're, uh, that we're beginning today, our fall series that I've entitled Better Than I Deserve. If you, if you uh, don't have an outline, there's some there in the back. And essentially what we're doing is we're going to be look, taking just what I call a second look at the, at the subject of the grace of God. Uh, I've entitled our session today Evangelical Pharisees, which uh, may be a little upsetting to some people. Uh, obviously an evangelical is a person who is committed to the gospel. Uh, a Pharisee we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But uh, uh, the Pharisees were people who were really constrained by a lot of rules and regulations. And one of the things that, that I've discovered uh, in my own walk with the Lord, uh, just the struggles that I have personally and also the struggles that uh, I talk with other people about uh, in their own lives, is that... Uh, we tend to put a lot of rules and regulations on ourselves and we begin to think of our relationship with God in those kind of terms. And one of the things that I want us to talk about over these next weeks together as we explore this is how is it that the grace of God works? We live in a, we live in a world that is not so much amazed by grace anymore. Now we sing about amazing grace, but I'm not sure it's as amazing as... Uh, for a lot of us, as it really should be. In fact, for many of us, it's kind of boring. You know, you, you start talking about building programs and you talk about financial programs and people get kind of real interested in those sorts of things. But when you begin to talk about the grace of God, it's just kind of like this, this blue mist just sort of settles over a person. And it's not that anybody necessarily disagrees, but you say, well, you know, what's the big deal about this? But it really is a big deal. And I hope over these next weeks together as we explore this that, uh, that we will see that. I think it's, it's easy to understand why even as Christians we've become sort of vaccinated against the whole concept of the gospel of grace. Because when we look at the institutions around us, uh, everything operates pretty much on a performance kind of basis. It's sort of the treadmill mentality. You know, in every business, uh, they have what they call, almost every business, they have what they call performance evaluations. And they get you in to talk about what you're doing in the company. And when they talk about your performance evaluation, it's not how you feel about what you're doing or about how hard you're trying. They're interested in one thing and one thing only, and what's that? Results. What, what kind of results are coming from what you're doing? And I think it's easy for us to sort of begin to, because we're exposed to that so much, to begin to sort of uh, posit that, as it were, on top of our view of, uh, of the way things, uh, spiritual things, that is. You look, at, uh, you look at government institutions, you think about all the entitlement programs that there are right now. What, what, what is an entitlement program? An entitlement program means you have a right to make a demand about something. Well... Uh, you've got all of these programs, you've got folks making demands, and so it's not a matter of grace as far as dealing with the program. It's, this is what the government owes me. 
uh, you think of it in terms of, uh, of the educational system. And, and I taught for several years in, at the college level, and there's sort of a systematic dumbing down. Uh, you know, even in, uh, in early school now, you find things, you know, how much is two plus two? Oh, well, two plus two is five. Well, it's not that that's a wrong answer. It's just that that's an interesting answer, and we need to explore why you think two plus two is five. And because the, the emphasis now seems to be more on feeling good about oneself, developing self-esteem. And, of course, genuine uh, good self-image flows out of doing the right things and feeling good about having done the right things. But this helps us to see why with, with entitlement programs, for example, with all of the dumbing down in education, with all of the emphasis on self-esteem, then you look at religion, and particularly with all the stuff you read about uh, today, there's a, there's a rejection of absolute truth. In other words, no longer is the Bible uh, the standard, the arbiter for uh, determining what we actually believe, Rather, we sit in judgment on the Bible. Say, so, well, now this, uh, yeah, I know this is what the Bible says, but that cannot possibly mean, it can't possibly mean what it says. And, uh, and, and instead, religion has now turned to inclusiveness. Well, I know that Jesus said that he's the way and the truth and the life, and nobody can come to the Father except through him. But you have to remember that that was back in Jesus' day, and today we need to be more inclusive. We don't want to let anybody out. And yet, when you think about it, oh, let's see, yeah, I still got a marker. The word church itself, uh, in, the, in the original language, the, the Greek language, the word church is the word ekklesia. And the word ekklesia means the called out ones. The called out ones. So. When we're talking about the church, we're talking about people whom God has already separated from the world. He's called them out to himself. So why is it that we want to sit in judgment on the scriptures rather than letting the scriptures sit in judgment on what we're doing? Well, when you put all of that kind of thinking together, now we're just sort of setting the stage right now. When you put all that kind of thinking together, it's no wonder that we develop this performance mentality, uh, this performance uh, evaluation mentality, and we kind of posit this on, our, uh, on, our, on the way that we view spiritual things. And I'll tell you, there's a, there's a little test that very often we can, we can give ourselves to, to find out what we really believe about the grace of God. And here's, here's, a, here's one such test. You get up in the morning, and uh, you're, you're already having a tough, it's one of those two dwarf mornings. You're grumpy and sleepy already right away. And so you have this argument with your, uh, with your spouse or with someone there who's living in the house. You're having all this fuss and carrying on with them. It finally leads to just some really hateful kind of words. You, you finally get out of the house. You're just ready to get away. You get to the office, and there's a person who's going through a really tough time and you discover that it's a great opportunity to share the gospel, to share the claims of Christ with this person. How do you feel about that? For most of us, we would say, well, it seems like it's a real good opportunity to share, but I'm really not sure God will bless this now.
because of what I did over here this morning. But you see, that's the performance mentality. That's saying that, what, that God's blessing is based on something over here and what we understand, what we're going to be studying over the next few weeks. Now, is obedience important? You better believe it's important, and we're going to be talking about that. But when we're talking about grace, what is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's something that we haven't earned. And so we want to, we want to investigate that. Uh, the, world, the, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, I think it's the Phillips translation, it says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. And I think that's what we've done. That's the reason grace is not exciting. You know, grace, who wants to have a Bible study on grace? What's that all? You know, tell me something that's really important. But when you understand that all that comes our way, that God's love and mercy, that his kindness, all of those things that come our way are not based on the fact that I've earned any of that, but just based on the fact that it was his good pleasure to give that to me and to you if you are his, then that ought to be something that ought to really excite us and it ought to evoke in us a sense of praise and thanksgiving to the God who has done all of that on our behalf. I put a copy of a very famous hymn in your notes there, the one by John Newton entitled Amazing Grace. Probably most of you are familiar with the story of John Newton. He was a slave trader. Uh, he, would, he would bring them over from Africa and sell them here in the, uh, in the United States. And so as a, as a slave trader, uh, he, was, he just had an awful reputation, uh, just was quite a pagan himself. And yet, in the goodness, in the, in the, in the good providence of God, what God did was he saved John uh, Newton, and one of the things that John Newton did, he not only he became a preacher, he also, in this uh, instance, became a hymn writer. Now, I'm not going to sing this, but I want us to just, uh, you just follow along. Let's just read through it together, and notice what Newton says, because there's, uh, there's some amazing things that he says, and I think very often we just don't think about these when we read them. He said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. What's a wretch? Yeah, kind of a sorry kind of person. You know, now that doesn't sound like something that, uh, that you'd hear taught in public schools these days, you know, or that you'd hear taught somebody, you know, you bunch of wretches. Uh, you know, the Bible talks about uh, people as worms. Sometimes you say, oh, no, we, that... That would, that, would, uh, that would go against all of my sensibilities to talk about something like that. But Newton saw something. <clears throat> he saw himself as what the Bible described him as being apart from a relationship with God. He said, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I was a lost person. I was a blind person. Now, how does a lost, blind wretch come into relationship with God? Well, if he's lost and blind, he sure can't find God. He can't see God. He has no interest in God. So it takes the grace of God reaching out to that person, bringing him to faith. And that's what Newton discovered. 
"'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Oh, well, now you're not supposed to fear. That's, we hear that a lot. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." In other words, one of the things that we discover, and again, we're going to be talking about this over the weeks to come, is that because of what happened in the fall, when we come into this world, we are sinners by birth, we're sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice. The only thing that we deserve and the only thing that God owes us at all is a one-way ticket to the pit. And yet God in His mercy and in His grace has determined that there are people upon whom He will set His affection and He will bring them to Himself. And Newton discovered that he was among those, that, that, that he recognized that there was a fear of the judgment of God, but once God's grace worked in his life, what had, what had grace done? It was grace that his fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear? The hour I first believed through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. One of the things we want to talk about is that a lot of us give lip service to being saved by grace, and we say, yes, that's the way we are saved, is by grace. But once you're saved, then it's sort of a performance-based mentality in our relationship with God, and we're going to discover that's not what the Bible teaches. See, it's, it's kind of like bankruptcy. You read a lot about bankruptcy in the, in the papers today, especially over the last few years. If you had any stock, you know, there are companies that just went belly up all over the place. And there are a number of ways that uh, companies can go bankrupt. Uh, there's a, 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 two, of the, two of the most popular are uh, Chapter 7 and Chapter 11. Well, Chapter 11 is kind of like temporary bankruptcy. In other words, a, a company is in, is in dire straits, but they realize that if they just get a little bit of a respite, they can get back on a good, solid financial footing and they can be okay again. That's, that's sort of what Kmart's been going through. But then there's another, there's another kind of bankruptcy, and that's Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's when you realize, I mean, it's over. That what you do is you just sell off all the assets and you pay the creditors as much as you can and you say, you know, it's been fun trying, but it's all done. Well... As far as our spirituality is concerned, because of our sinfulness, we're all in bankruptcy spiritually, that is, before we come to Christ. But it's not chapter 11, it's chapter 7. It's total bankruptcy. I mean, just, there's nothing left to do. It's just over. And we recognize that, and we say, Oh, God, have mercy on me, and God in His grace and mercy through Christ brings us to faith, He saves us. But then, after He saves us, and we acknowledge that, we say, yes, I, I had nothing to do with my salvation. I'm trusting totally in the finished work of Christ. But then once we come to faith, then it's like, well now, maybe it wasn't a chapter 7 after all. Maybe it was more of a chapter 11 bankruptcy. And from now on, it's sort of up to me to kind of stay on right relationship with God, and if He's going to bless me, it's going to be because of my performance. And see, that's the kind of mentality that we have to guard against, and that's what we want to study about over these weeks to come. Uh, back to our uh, <clears throat> hymn here again. 
He says, he writes, And when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. Not only is there forgiveness for now, but there's the promise of eternal life. When we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And again, most Christians generally will affirm this, uh, this whole issue of salvation by grace. Look at uh, some of the verses that I put in your notes there. That first one from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Probably many of you could quote this. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. In other words, even the faith that we express in Christ is not something that we drum up. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, when we get to heaven, and old, you know, Billy and I standing there before, the, before Jesus, and you know, Billy is just saying, man, I sure am glad to be here, Lord. And I'm saying, and I'm over there saying, Lord, I sure am glad to be here too. Now, now Billy and I are going to compare all the stuff that we did and see who's, who got the most points here. I said, no, 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 no. says, not by works, so that no one can boast. If there's any boasting at all, the boasting is going to be how great you are, Lord, how precious you are, how magnificent you are for what you've done. The boasting is not in us. The boasting is in him. Notice Paul writes uh, something else along this line in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, where he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness, that is a right standing, being in right standing with God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, that is through jumping through all the hoops, doing all the stuff that the Bible says I'm supposed to do, he said, then Christ died for nothing. See, see, one of the reasons that God gave the law was to show us our sinfulness. And we see our sinfulness and we say, man, my goose is cooked. Well, that's exactly where God wants us. He wants us to say, yes, that's right, your goose is cooked, and unless you turn to me, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. See, the law, we realize, I can't live up to this. I just can't. So, but there's one who has, and that's Christ. And he's died for the sins of his people, and when we trust in him, all of his righteousness is imputed to us. We're clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. That's another thing that we want to talk about. What, let's talk a little bit about the Pharisees themselves, and then I want us to look at a story that Jesus told. And uh, again, this is all sort of introductory to what we're going to be talking about. The Pharisees were a real interesting group. In the, <clears throat> in the time in which uh, Jesus was conducting his earthly ministry, there were a number of, uh, of groups of people. The zealots were trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. Uh, there were the Essenes who were a group who were uh, sort of stayed to themselves and they were kind of uh, sort of an, an, lived an ascetic type of lifestyle. But there were two main uh, religious groups of Jesus' day. One of them was called Pharisees, and we're going to be talking about them for just a minute. Pharisees, the others were called the uh, Sadducees. Uh, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives of that day. You, would, you could call them the fighting fundies. 
They, of course, you didn't, <clears throat> didn't have the New Testament in that day, but they believed the Torah. They believed all the stuff in the Bible. They believed uh, in the supernatural. They believed in angels. They believed that ultimately one day there would be a resurrection. The problem with the Pharisees is that, it, that they had added years and years of tradition. They had also added their own little interpretations of what it meant. You know, for example, it says... Uh, you're to keep the Sabbath holy. You're not to do any traveling on the Sabbath. So the, uh, the Pharisees had figured out a way to get around that. What you could do is uh, as before Friday evening rolled around, which is when the Jewish Sabbath began, you could take some of your earthly belongings and you could take them down the roadways and you could leave them in front of somebody's house. And then you could take them a little bit further and you could leave those in front of somebody's house. So that when the Sabbath came along, actually if you decided to make this long trip, you weren't really getting away from home because your stuff from home was all along the way. See, now that's, that's, what the, that's the kind of thing that the Pharisees were doing. And it drove them nuts that Jesus uh, gave them a hard time about that. Now, on the other hand, the Sadducees were the religious liberals. They didn't believe the Torah. They didn't believe anything supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were more of a political party than they were a religious party. <clears throat> the, uh, in fact, uh, you remember that incident in the, uh, in the Gospels where uh, someone came to Jesus and, and try, tried to give him a trick question, said, uh, said Jesus, there was this guy that was married, and uh, uh, he died, and so his wife married his brother, and then that brother died, and then subsequently he went through the rest of the family until this, this woman had finally married about five or six uh, different brothers in this family, and said, in the resurrection, whose wife will he be? You remember that story? Well, the fascinating thing about the story is not the story itself, but who asked the question. It was the Sadducee who asked that question. Well, the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. What they were doing, they were just trying to trip up Jesus. And, of course, Jesus tripped them up instead. But Jesus didn't fit into their stereotypes. Jesus... Uh, uh, for, for them, uh, for the Pharisees, religion meant keeping a lot of rules and regulations. Uh, there were a number of famous Pharisees. Uh, one that we're introduced to in John's Gospel in the third chapter is Nicodemus. Remember, he was the one that Jesus came to by night. And, uh, and Jesus said, you know, uh, unless you're born again, you can't see, born from above, you can't see the things of the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, you mean I got to crawl back up in my mother's womb? You see, it was just, uh, he, he couldn't begin to understand. And Jesus even said, you are the teacher in all Israel and you don't understand this. And of course, later on, we know Nicodemus came to faith. And it was Nicodemus who, along with Joseph of Arimathea, came to claim the body of Jesus after he was crucified. But during those, that time, we don't know how long, Nicodemus was sort of a clairol Christian. Nobody knew for sure. And certainly he was keeping a low profile because he himself was a Pharisee. There was a fellow named Gamaliel that's mentioned in the book of Acts who was a, a great teacher and a real peacemaker. He was also uh, uh, the Apostle Paul's mentor. Uh, and then, of course, the most famous of all, I guess, would be Saul of Tarsus who became Paul the apostle and in fact in the book of Philippians he talks about 
being the strictest of the strict of the sect of the of the Pharisees. So they were sticklers. They wanted to dot every I and cross every T. And so the reason that, that we're about to look at what we're going to look at now in this story that Jesus tells is because if we're not careful, even as believers, we can have the heart and the attitude of a Pharisee. We can be evangelical Pharisees. We can believe in the gospel. But our belief in the gospel is linked by constraints to live on a performance kind of basis in our relationship with the Lord. And that's a dangerous thing because what it does is it just leaves grace parked at the curbside. Now let's see that illustrated uh, from a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. Very uh, uh, well-known story. Uh, Jesus is going to tell a parable. <clears throat> the word par this, this, is, uh, this might be of interest to you. The word parable in the original language is the word parabole. Parabole. Uh, para means alongside. We, you, we have uh, words in our English language, a paralegal, a paramedic. Uh, what a para means alongside. Remember, the Spirit of God is, the, is called the parakletos. Sometimes we refer to him as the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to help. But that word means alongside. Bole is a word that uh, uh, originally meant ball, and then it came to be known as to cast or to throw. And so the word parable literally means to cast or to throw alongside. And what a parable is, is it is a story that is cast alongside a situation to make a point. In other words, there's something going on. Jesus is doing something, and there's something going on around him. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops and he tells a story. And the story illustrates something about what's going on in that situation. And that's what Luke 15 is all about here. Notice the first two verses give us the setting for the parable. It says, this is Luke 15, and this is from the New International Version. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners... Now, why do you suppose Luke would put the word sinners in quotation marks there? What, why, why, maybe? Maybe just to sort of highlight it and bring out the point that in somebody's mind there was some sort of stigma to this group that was following Jesus. Now, the tax collectors... And sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now what does that tell us about the Pharisees' attitude toward these people? Yeah, they looked down on them. You're exactly right. They looked down on them. It was a real negative kind of attitude toward them. And so what Jesus is... So you've got this situation where Jesus has been... He's been teaching and preaching... And you've got this situation where there are literally thousands of people who are just gathered around Jesus listening to him teach and preach. And most of those people who are around him are just average kind of folks like you and me. Just, you know, some tax collectors. It's hard to think of a tax collector as an average person. But anyway, there were tax collectors and, uh, and the sinners, at least in the mind of uh, these uh, this other group that was present, the Pharisees, that's the way they viewed them. They, now, obviously, we're all sinners before God, but they looked on them and they said, you know, 
what kind of value do these people have? Why would you want to hang out with people like this? And Jesus is aware of that attitude, and Jesus tells a story. And now, very often what we do is we think that he tells three parables. He tells the parable of the sheep, and he tells the parable of the coin, and he tells the parable of the lost son. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that he tells a parable. It's one parable, but it's in three movements. First movement's about a sheep, a lost sheep, an animate object. The second movement is about a lost coin, an inanimate object. And then the third movement, and that's where Jesus was going all the time, is about human beings and about the value of human beings and the way we tend to look at human beings. Remember his audience. He's telling this story primarily for the benefit of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were there watching what was going on. Let's pick up the story in verse 3. It said, Then Jesus told them this parable, singular, this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Hey, you think about it. You know, if you're, uh, if, you're in the, if you're in the livestock business, probably it wouldn't be bad to lose one. You say, man, if you, you get in with only a 1% loss, you're doing okay. But he says, no, this is a real dedicated kind of guy. He goes out and he finds this one. Now, and then what does he do? When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, we know this. Are there, is there any such thing as a really righteous person who does not need to repent? No. Jesus is obviously uh, using language here, and he's making a point. What's he, who's he drawing a distinction between? between these so-called tax collectors and sinners, and who? And the Pharisees. That's right. Then he goes on to say, incidentally, what, why would this guy go after his sheep? Why, why would he even bother? That's what he did for a living. It was valuable to him. Why was it valuable? Utilitarian purposes. doesn't say he was in love with the sheep. It just, you know, it meant money in his pocket. There was utility in going after this sheep. Verse 8, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Now, some people think this may be a reference to <clears throat> uh, something that women did in that day. They would wear a, a head, married women wore a headband, and it would have silver coins attached to it. And uh, if they lost one, there was kind of a superstition that, you know, maybe that meant she was, uh, had not been faithful to her husband. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. That's just one of the little tales that kind of goes along with the Bible. But anyway, for whatever reason, even if she just, you know, uh, had it in her Brighton purse and lost the coin, uh, the truth is that the coin was gone. She loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of, angel, of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Now, why is this woman after this coin? What, why not just say, well, you know, win some, lose some. But instead, she, man, she gets, the broom, she gets the hoover out and starts looking after things. Why is it such a big deal to find that coin? It's important. It's valuable to her. And why is it valuable? Well, we don't, we, it's hard to be sure why it's valuable to her, but clearly from some sort of utilitarian kind of standpoint. Now, at this point, Jesus shifts. He's told us about the sheep. He goes after it because it's valuable. And once you get the sheep back, what does everybody do when the sheep is restored? Man, everybody, it's party time. It's time to celebrate. And then you got the woman who lost the coin. And, you know, now sheep are hard-headed. They just, they'll wander off. They'll do all kinds of things. One of them go off the edge of a cliff and most of the rest of them will follow. They're just dumb. Isn't it interesting that the Bible refers to us as sheep? Because we tend to be sort of the same way. The inanimate object, you know, it didn't do anything like that. It, just, it was just lost. But now it's restored, and when it's restored, what's the result? Rejoicing. That's exactly right. And then Jesus continues. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, remind, I'll remind you that here's a guy with two sons in, in the culture of that day. Remember, the oldest son always got the double portion. So in this case, with two sons, the dad, at the time of his death, uh, just prior to his death, would have divided the inheritance up three ways. The older son would have gotten the double portion, and the younger son would have gotten his inheritance, his third. And in this case, the younger son is essentially looking at dad and saying, uh, drop dead. I want my stuff now. I don't want to wait until it's time for you to die. I want it now. Now, the dad was under no obligation to do that, but the dad did do that. He divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And most of the time when we hear sermons that, uh, about Luke 15, for about the next 10 minutes, we hear about prostitutes and gambling and just all kind of and drinking. And, but the Bible doesn't say any of that. It just says he leaves it to your imagination, wild living. After he had spent everything, here's a guy in bankruptcy, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Here is a Jew working for a Gentile, and what kind of business is the Gentile in? He is in the hog business. Now, what do you think all these people who are listening to this story, especially the Pharisees, were thinking when Jesus introduced Gentiles and hogs? Oh, you know, just that it's abhorrent to think about how a Jew could even work for a person like that. My goodness gracious. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, now we're not told how he came to his senses, but we're going to talk about that over the next few weeks. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Now, think about this boy's reasoning. 
and, and it could be one of two things. One, he's saying, he's saying to himself, I've got to earn my way back. That is, I'm just going to have to take the role of a servant and come back. Or, on the other hand, he may be casting himself on the mercy of his father. And it's hard to tell from, uh, from the context exactly which it is. But, nevertheless, whatever it is, he's ready to come back. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does this tell us dad was doing all this time? Dad's watching. See, dad's interested and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. Incidentally, it was uh, beneath the dignity of a Jewish elder to run. You just, that's something you just didn't do. This guy didn't care. He was just so glad to see that boy coming home that he didn't care about his own dignity. He just ran out to grab that boy. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What do you think that boy smelled like? <sighs> smelled like that hog parlor. That's, oh, man. But you, you, and kissed him. He said, said, you know, son, I sure am glad to see you home. Let's get you cleaned up first, and then we'll, and then we'll talk some. No, that wasn't what Dad did. The son said to him, Father, now notice, he, he's got his little speech memorized, and he starts in on his speech. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And notice he never got to finish his speech. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring me the best robe. Let's cover this boy. What happens when, when God brings us to himself in Christ? He covers us with Christ's own righteousness. Bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. The ring was a seal and the Bible says that in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are sealed with the Spirit of God. He comes and takes up residence in us when God saves us. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Everybody's happy with the calf, I'm sure. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. <clears throat> Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, what does that remind us of? Well, it reminds us of verse 7 and verse 10. There is joy, there is celebration. What? When a sinner repents. Meanwhile, now see the story's not over. <clears throat> there's another brother. Remember there's an older brother and a younger brother? Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Now, what does this tell us about the older boy that he had to ask what's going on? He's sort of out of touch. He's, you know, dad's real interested in, in, in seeing his younger son come back. But this older son, yeah, man, he's out there working in the field. I'm getting it done is what he's doing. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father's killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. It's, it's party time. It's time to celebrate. It's time to rejoice. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Not only angry, but also obstinate. Refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice, not, not even my brother, when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, where'd we get that information? I don't know. 
who squandered your property with prostitutes comes up. You killed a fattened calf for him? <clears throat> notice, what, notice what he's doing. He's angry. He's obstinate. He's pleading his own merit. Why is it that they should have had a celebration for him? Why is it dad should have had a celebration for him? Because I've been the faithful one. I've been working hard all this time. He's been out squandering money. I've been busting it. You owe me. See, that's the way we think. We think because we're doing this stuff, God owes us. The only thing God owes us is a one-way ticket to the pit because of our sin. But God in His mercy shows grace on us. My son, the father said, You've all, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because, notice, not this son of mine, but this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why didn't this older son share the delight of the father? Well, it's because of the common errors that you and I make about grace. And that is that grace can be earned. The older son thought he could earn it. Perhaps the younger son thought that by becoming a servant, he could earn it. <clears throat> he could get back to being in good graces with the dad. And then certainly the older son had the view, well, some people deserve grace and some people don't deserve grace. After all, I have been faithful. You know, I've been teaching Sunday school all these years. You owe me. But what does the word grace mean? Unmerited, unearned. It's not something that we deserve. It's something that God is just pleased to give us. And we need to ask ourselves, what is it that makes something valuable? Is it just simply because of its utility? That is, it has some sort of utilitarian value for us. It will make our pockets a little bit fatter. Or is there something about human beings? Is there something intrinsic about human beings that gives them value? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next week because we're going to start back with creation and see how God created us and how we fell and how God responded to all of that. Now, what is, where is, what is the basis for the mindset that we have in giving things the value that we do? I think very often it's not on the basis of grace. It's on the basis of performance because we don't realize how much the world around us has squeezed us into its mold. I point you to the summary there and then we're through. In our culture, we constantly are being evaluated based on our performance. We're socialized from birth to expect either merit or demerit based on the evaluation of other people. You see it with kids. Uh, hey, you better be good, you know, it's, uh, it's December 5th, and you say to your child, you better be good or Santa Claus won't come. In other words, if you want to get something good, it's going to be based on your performance. We teach our children from the get-go that that is the way things work. And in the world, to a large extent, it is, but it's not the way God works. As believers in Christ... Very often we wrongly apply these same standards to our spiritual lives. Grace is the unmerited favor of God toward individuals based solely on the good pleasure of the one who gives it freely to whom he will.
human goodness, so-called goodness, can't earn it, and human evil can't thwart it. When we think about God's grace, what that speaks of is not how much we deserve something, but it speaks of how good God is. May God, over these next weeks together, as we continue to explore this, show us the truth of how wonderful His grace really is. Father, thank You so much for Your kindness and mercy and grace and goodness. Thank You for loving us when we were so unlovable. Thank You, Lord, not for waiting on us to change our ways, but, Lord, that You just reached down in the muck and mire of our sin and brought us to Yourself. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.